3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name is James and you're joined also by Rob and Grace. How was your weekend, Rob, starting with you? Good morning. Um, Yeah, pretty good. Um, not much to report from the weekends other than I attended the National Day of Action for Stopping Black Deaths in Custody on Saturday. Ah, how was it? Uh, very good. Very good to attend. Um, obviously, very heartbreaking. Um, mm. You know, there was a, there was a minute, minute silence at the end. Mm. Um, but, you know, we showed up. There were a bunch of people there, you know. Um and yeah, that's that's it. It was good to um, have some community. Yeah, sounds like a moving thing. Yep. Mm. How was your weekend, Grace? Well, I was just sitting in the library all day because I, mm. as usual, got to mm. get in all that assignments in and I was it's just been very busy coping up with that. But I'm also just really pushing myself at the moment because I want to finish as fast as I could because yeah. I always mm. leave things till the last minute mm. and then... I end up having to rush my work. So mm. I just really want to yeah. start earlier and make sure that I get through it. So that was just my weekend as mm. usual and working. How how long until you're finished now studying? Three more weeks. Ooh. I think I'm going to come out every week I come on this show. Yeah, And that's going to be my thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be my thing. I'm going to calm down till I fi- pass, in my, uh, fin- pass in my last assignment. Yeah. yeah, We'll have a little countdown. Yes, and the, the show that we have when you're done, we'll have a little party. <laughs> we'll have a little party. Let's go. <laughs> wow. Mm. special. My weekend was very filled with love, with mm-hmm. family and friends. So I'm a very happy chappy. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, dinner parties and lunches and a gig. And it's like, oh, yeah. Nice. This Ooh. is this is good. This mm. is good. So let's jump to some, to some headlines. Mm. Do you want to take us away, Grace? Yep. So over the, week, over the weekend, more than 1,000 have been... Uh, more than 1,000 are dead. Uh, this is according to the Israeli death tolls after the surprised attack by the militant group Hamas on the communities in the country's south. And it has risen to at least 600, including 44 soldiers. But all, but in the, at the other side... Apologies, yep. About on the other side, retaliatory Israeli airstrikes have killed at least 413 people in the Gaza Strip, with 2,300 people wounded, according to Palestinian officials. And this is according to the according to BBC. So, the, And the United Nations World Food Program has called on the establishment of humanitarian corridors to def- deliver food supplies into Gaza following this Israeli airstrikes in response to the Hamas attacks. Israeli Prime Minister Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said the country is at war and they would exact a heavy price from 
the enemies. Mm. Mm. Uh, back here in Australia, industry modelling shows Australia must increase its spending in the renewable energy sector by $10 billion per year for the next 10 years if it is to keep up with this so-called global clean energy arms race. The Clean Energy Council Australia described the country's existing funding as insufficient and without a boost it could mean we are left at the back of the queue for the technology and skills we need. The council's modelling follows America's Inflation Reduction Act, which offers tax incentives for taking up zero-carbon tech and is expected to initially cost $369 US dollars, uh, billion US dollars, sorry. sorry. Mm, billion with a B is always a lot. Billion with a B. Uh, in other news, the postal vote applications for the voice referendum close on Wednesday. Um you have 48 hours left if you want to get in early. Uh, and people who are eligible, uh, there are two types of postal voters. There are general postal voters, who are people who are signed up for postal voting for all federal elections and referendums. And then there are single postal voters, who are voters who are doing a postal vote as a one-off for an electoral event. So if you'd like to learn more whether you're, whether you're eligible, whether you can go do it, just go to the ABC. They have a nice article uh, called postal vote applications for the voice referendum close on Wednesday. Here's who is eligible to and how to apply. So there's your good news. Nice. So I think um, we'll jump to a few announcements now, and then we'll jump to a song, and then we'll bring on our first interview. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast with Rob, James and Grace. That was Weather Eyes by Tradewind, a personal favourite song of mine. Now we are going to move to dissect the Disability Royal Commission with River Knight, a person living with disability and an advocate for reform in the sector. Hi River, how are you going? Hi, good morning. River, first of all, as a person with a disability, what is your take on the Commission's 222 recommendations? Well, it's an interesting one because in the disability sector, we weren't really waiting for a Royal Commission to come out to identify what needs to be fixed because we've all been talking about it for decades. Um, The Royal Commission really is just serving to um, showcase that to the rest of Australia. So the Australian public that doesn't necessarily work in the disability sector doesn't really see those scary stories day in, day out don't really necessarily appreciate where we're coming from when we talk about how serious some of this stuff is. So um, the Royal Commission has really 
providing that voice. And, and 222 recommendations might sound like a lot, but when you're looking at disability services, you're looking at children's services, adult services, we've got uh, more than half of people over 65 living with disability. We have early intervention programs. We've got forensics where we lock people up with disabilities. We have um, school settings. We looked at a lot of different things in the commission. So um, it's natural they're going to have a lot of different recommendations coming out there. But uh, mm. I guess for us in the sector... What we're looking at now is uh, getting safeguards in place and not waiting another two years. Yeah. Um, now, now that all of all of these stories have been kind of laid out in the commission, how do you think accountability within the disability sector can be improved? Well, I think. Um what we need to look at is the safeguards that were taken away when NDIS rolled out. So when NDIS rolled out federally, just when we had our 10-year birthday recently, mm. um, we actually took away all of the safeguards state by state that used to come out and visit and check up on people living with disability in out-of-home care settings, people who weren't able to necessarily speak up and advocate well for themselves. We took mm. a lot of that away. We also defunded a lot of the advocacy services that were a really good buffer. Um, and we didn't replace that. So what we've actually done is taken um, the, I guess, supervision away from service providers that used to be there, and there's a lot of great service providers, but we took that that supervision away and um, we haven't replaced it. So, you know, it's a, a perfect storm for criminals and a perfect storm for abuse, neglect and exploitation to keep happening. So for us, wow. we are just saying to the government, we're saying to people like Bill Shorten, we need you to get your act together. We need you to put those safeguards back in place urgently because some of those stories that people are reading, we can't wait another day. Mm. Wow. Wow. And since since its release, what if anything, has been the response from the government about the commission? Well, I haven't really seen a lot of responses. We've sort of, I guess, seen that uh, thoughts and prayers approach of going, yes, it's very mm. sad, it's very terrible, and thanks for the courage of people that participated. And we call it, we've, uh, of course, we've all as a sector said, thank you so much for people that had that courage to participate. But mm. um, we've had a new government in power for the last couple of years. Um, we still haven't seen those safeguards put in back in place. We've heard a lot of, um, I guess, stories, and we've seen the government, uh, you know, wandering around the, the country, visiting people and, and being seen and having photos of people with disabilities, which is lovely to see. But what we need is those safeguards funded and put back in place, and we want to stop the funding that's being spent in NDIS on things that are not effective and are wasting money. We don't want more money. We just want that funds to be used better and more sensibly mm. to put straight into safeguards um, so people are going and checking up. Mm. Why, do you, why do you think the safeguards were taken away? Like what, what was the reasoning behind it? Well, what we had with the safeguard system previously is we had a state-funded program the disability was um, disability services were funded by the state. We had a state-funded um, agency that would come and check up. So it would be Public Guardian or, or someone within that state that had the mm. power to raise issues with the funding body and raise issues with the service provider. Now, when we went to a federal system, the, that state body didn't have the power to um, engage with that federal body mm. because federal trumps state. And that funding that was this, that was state-based, a lot of that funding that uh, went to disability services, that little bucket, was then sent to federal. 
So we've had a 10-year period where people have said, yeah, look, we're not sure how to do this now that we've changed the way we fund it to federal. Uh, we will get to it. And in the meantime, we've seen abuse, neglect, exploitation, um, and we've seen those scary stories that are out there. And unless people are walking in the door and going, you know what, I'm going to have a look and make sure you're doing the right thing, people will die. Wow. Wow, that's really haunting. Um, I want to just talk about the education. I've noticed a lot of chat about that and and the commission's recommendations to sort of phase out segregated education by 2051, which seems like so far away. Do you think that that amount of time is really necessary to end it? Well, the interesting thing about the education side of it is, is when I was at university studying special education about 25 years ago, that was the model that we were um, being taught. Um, so we've already gone 25 years down the track and still haven't really got there. Um, and, and the way we're looking at it with the recommendations, a lot of people are polarising it. So we get people going, oh, you know, we can't close special schools. You know, what's, what are the teachers going to do in the mainstream schools if we put all those kids in there, you know? And that's simply not the, the conversation that's being had. So the recommendations talked about trying to, to downgrade the use of special schools exclusively so you have one option or another, um, trying to bring them closer to mainstream settings, trying to make sure that young people with disabilities have contact with mainstream settings if they do require a specialist setting occasionally, but also those kids that can survive and thrive in a mainstream setting right now who cannot because this, the way that the mainstream setting is, teachers don't have those resources to be able to provide that extra support. They've had uh, teacher aid funding cut. They've had a lot of the programs that used to work with mainstream schools with young mm. people that had disabilities has been round back and we're not seeing the support in there. So no one wants those teachers to be overwhelmed by being given more work um, without that support. So we're really going to have to radically change the way we do education here in Australia, which could take a very, very long time because yeah. we've been talking about it for 25 years um, and we still haven't managed to do it. We've actually gone backwards. So uh, I think we're going to need that time to actually get it right. But in the meantime, we can certainly look at how we fund this sort of stuff. We don't want extra funding. Mm. We certainly want to get it away from the bureaucrats and put it back into the hands of teachers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the issue when it gets caught in the caught in the red tape. It just becomes another issue, right? Well, we, we want teachers, and that that's the thing with the Royal Commission. That's the big thing that we're pushing at the moment is we don't want task force made by bureaucrats where they spend the next 15 meetings trying to come up with a logo and a name for their task force. Mm. We want teachers involved in how the school system can be changed, revolutionised, so they can actually start valuing young people with uh, disabilities instead of tr talking about them as if they're a burden. Mm. You know, we, we want the, the disability sector, those recommendations, the things that need to happen in the disability sector, they need to be led by people with disability so that when they make a policy decision, the person can and say, well, you know what, on the ground, that's not going to work, you know, because I know. Um, not, you know, mm. We thought this was a wonderful idea. We spent $20 million on a, um, consultants, and, oh, we didn't get it right. We, we don't want that. We want people that know what they're talking about involved in those task force, yep. and we want it to do be done very, very quickly. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, like the organisations that can put this in, in place, do you think they have the diversity to do that? 
Well, I think there's um, certainly a lot of really passionate people that are very good at what they do. Um, I think what happens, though, is the mechanisms of government and government agencies, they work way too slow. So what we need is a brush fire that comes through. We need people engaged to get that done really, really quickly. And we do need everyone on board. So one of the things we're going to have to really start with is, I guess, we need a big culture change to get that to happen because no matter who gets put in charge of making that change, if the rest of the community doesn't understand what's going on, it's going to become a polarised topic. And we're already seeing that with education. We've got people on radio, we've got shock jocks sort of saying ridiculous things like, oh, we can't put our poor teachers through that. Those kids shouldn't be allowed in our classrooms. The rest of the kids are going to suffer. And that is not the conversation. That's not even what's been suggested that's going to happen. And that kind of rubbish is what makes it hard to get these things to happen in the first place. So I remember back in school sitting there in boring classrooms, doing sheet work all day, um, being bored out of my brain. The average kid might be able to tolerate that, but when you put in disability and that sort of thing, it gets really difficult. But the things that work in an education setting mm. that we do for kids with disability or kids that have different sort of learning styles, every child in that classroom, you know, gets something from that. They get value from that by having an education setting that's a lot more dynamic and um, it's something that they can engage in. So the things that we, a lot of the things that we talk about, Every child's going to benefit from, not just people with disabilities. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, I I just wanted to ask as well. I I, I read that uh, two just two of the six commissioners um, involved in the in the royal commission are people living with a disability. Do you think more could have been done to improve that representation? Well, I guess what you what you're looking at is um, just getting the right people for the job. So, um, yes, we need people who understand disability, but we also need people who understand all the processes and legislation involved and things like that. Mm. But there's certainly nothing stopping uh, the government or any employer in Australia from employing a person with a disability that has the same skills as someone who doesn't. So, um, I can't see why there would have been any reason why we couldn't have had that entire commission full of people with disability running a uh, inquiry into disability. However, we do find that, like every workplace, we have our token targets, but the reality is, is there's thousands of people with disability that are very capable, um, who are you know, um, quite competitive when it comes to that employment process, but we still get that backlash of people who, um, for some reason, just don't allow it to progress. And that's something that we need to change as a culture. So, you know, if I if I was going to, you know, get put anyone else in charge of something, I'd want someone who knows about what they're talking about. And yes, I'm sure the wonderful people that did the commission did a great job, but I would have loved to have seen someone with a disability in charge of a disability royal commission. I'd like someone with a disability to be my disability minister. I would mm. like someone who's a woman to be the woman the women's minister. No, same thing. I'd like the person who's the minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs to be a person who's Aboriginal. So, and that's really important. Otherwise, not doing it, it says a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And just one last question, River, before we wrap up. Um, you mentioned about driving cultural change to really shift um, how people with the disabilities are viewed. How do we drive that? Well, I think if people can stop looking at people with a disability as their inspiration, 
um, and treat them as normal people, that would be a great start. We have uh, 4.4 million Australians or more living with disabilities. So, you know, it's part of pretty much every family. Everyone has contact with someone with this disability. What we need to do is uh, stop being a little bit too scared to talk about it and just uh, realise that these are just everyday people. Um, and start seeing it in the media more. So if we can get the media to actually start valuing and realising that it's not an us and them thing, that everyone's part of everything, um, and we can start treating that in the community like that, I think that would, would really help. So I guess if we can stop um, looking at disability as a, a special group that's other um, and just realise that it's actually just part of the community, that's where we start. And that's when we look at that segregation, you know, because you have a disability doesn't mean you need to be in a special setting because the, the, the same setting that everyone else is using is the same, the same community that we all live in. Beautiful. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, River. No worries. Thanks for having me. That was River Knight, a person living with a disability and an advocate for reform in the sector, talking about the Disability Royal Commission and its recommendations. Now we're just going to jump to some announcements, sorry. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Gonna pack up all my things, pack the kitchen sink, spend a bit of time thinking about all the reasons that I drink. Hair will thin, taps will drip, everyone you know will die. None of us have much time. Guts will churn, teeth will grind, pigs will all but fly. Everything you know will end, dear, none of us have that much time. Takes a drop of rain to start a flood, one person to ruin my day. But if it takes till tomorrow, browse my fire, but I promise you I won't mind. Oh, grave digger, grave digger, put down your shovel, just jump right in here. This hole we're in's only just getting bigger. Nights will lengthen, days get quicker, so I'm packing up my things, dear, gonna take it. Wounds will heal, heart will feel 
none of us have much time. Oh, the tail will wag, bread will rise. Twelve more seconds, one more line. None of us have much time. You're listening to 3CR 855am, and that was None of Us Have Much Time by Quality Use Cars. Now I'm going to be speaking to Ian Rintel, who is the spokesperson of Refugee Action Coalition, and we're going to be discussing the corruption suspicions over a secret Papua New Guinea refugee contract. Good morning, Ian. Yeah, morning, guys. So lovely to have you here. So Ian, can we first get you to explain a bit about what is this secret Papua New Guinea refugee contract? Yeah, sure. In uh, late 2021, uh, the Morrison government negotiated an arrangement with Papua New Guinea uh, that effectively um, meant that the total responsibility for the refugees that Australia had taken there in 2013 um, would now be with Papua New Guinea and not and not with Australia, and uh, since that time, uh, both uh, Liberal governments and now you know the Labor government since May uh, 2022 when they were elected have insisted uh, that the the Australian government now has absolutely no responsibility for the people that they you know forcibly sent to Manus Island in 2013 and um, you know remain in in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so, uh, in spite of many, many attempts um, to uh, find out the the, the uh, terms of the deal, the actual what the what the arrangements were uh, or are, uh, the that the game again, both Liberal and Labor governments have refused to disclose the secret deal. Uh, similarly, the Papua New Guinea government has refused to disclose. Um, and uh, but um, so. Yeah, that's that's the problem. There is a secret deal. There is now 62 people still in uh, in, in Papua New Guinea, uh, 62 refugees, asylum seekers who were sent by Australia to Papua New Guinea, who are in Papua New Guinea, uh, but uh, we simply don't know what the terms of that deal were, and uh, we don't know. Uh, well, we don't really don't know that the the Labor government insists that they will do still you know have no responsibility for them whatsoever. Mm. So do we know the reason why this deal was created? Um, we don't re- no we don't um, mm. but but, the, but but it's fairly obvious uh, it was to make sure that for the Australian government wanted to uh, simply wash their hands of the refugees that they had you know they had sent there and that just seemed uh, you know that there was a simple way of doing that uh, to uh, there's obviously you know a certain amount of money that was involved in that you know in that secret deal and on the payment of that deal it meant that uh, the Australian government you know could now uh, keep those refugees at arm's length and deny you know having any responsibility for them whatsoever mm-hmm. I see and and under this deal, there actually have been service providers who invoice this Papua New Guinea Immigration and the Citiz- um, Immigration and Citizenship Authority, also known as the ICA, and they refer to the they refer the invoice to Chatswood for the payment. So, can we know who are the, who are the Chatswood, and what is their link with the Chief Migration Officer Stanis Holahau, who is uh, a, as part of the Papua New Guinea government? 
Uh, look, those those arrangements are also are also murky. I mean, the thing is that we've had to put together, you know, try to work out, piece together, you know, like who was responsible for what, because the, the, you know both governments are still insisting that the uh, terms of the, of the deal remain remain secret. But our our concern initially was that. Um, that the money would run out. Um, it was simply a matter of time. If there was, if there, unless there was an ongoing payment arrangement uh, with the, which the Morrison government indicated that there wasn't, uh, that it wasn't some ongoing funding because that would have meant uh, there was a, there was a, you know a connection between the Australian government and the and the refugees. Um, it was very clear. You know, Papua New Guinea's not. You know, able or willing to keep fun, you know, funding you know refugees that you know the amounts that would be actually required, um, and you know that's what we said. The money's going to run out. These people are then going to be left on the you know on the streets, uh, be, be denied any any kind of support. Chatswood, um, it was the uh, service provider. Uh, now it's got a very murky uh, background as well because. Uh, there's a company called JDA, which used to be the uh, service provider when Australia did have responsibility and there was ongoing funding arrangements. Uh, Chatswood was created uh, by a, a former manager with JDA, but what it looked like at the time uh, was uh, that that the the manager had created the uh, the former JDA manager had created Chatswood. Uh, for the purposes of you know the secret you know the secret arrangement, so it simply looked like the secret arrangement had had meant that Chatswood was going to be the the main contractor, uh, and it was going that was going to be how they you know um, you know managed yeah Chatswood was going to manage the funds, uh, and that would also mean that they were a bit arm's length from you know Papua New Guinea. But the way the uh, the invoicing has been arranged is that uh, it that, that the invoices went to the CMO, uh, the, the Chief Migration Officer, mm-hmm. uh, so there was some government oversight. But then the CMO handed that on to, you know, to Chatswood, and, and the payments were made, you know, via, you know, Chatswood. Uh, but the actual connection between the two, um, we don't, we don't really know. That's and that's one of the problems uh, that uh, there's no. It's, it's simply, it's simply not. It's not transparent. <clears throat> and now the money has ran out. Um, it's very clear that the, there's been a whole lot of arrangements. Even even a few months after the deal was first struck in 2021, it became very obvious that there were attempts by the service provider. Chatswood had created a number of other companies. It seemed like there were then cosy arrangements between Chatswood and the companies that it was creating uh, to um, you know cover up uh, you know how the money was actually you know was actually being spent. And we started to see from very early on. Uh, people, uh, refugees being shifted from accommodation to accommodation, the jet services that were generally being provided starting to be reduced. Um, so, I mean, we were suspicious from very early on uh, that, uh, you know, money, money was being uh, mis- mishandled and misappropriated. Mm. And the Labour government hasn't... How, have they, how, how basically have they reciprocated with this deal? Like, what have they said about it? Well, they've they've simply they've maintained the, the same line as Morrison uh, mm. that there's a, secret, there's a secret deal under the terms they deal uh, they're not won't be made public and uh, Australia has no responsibility, you know, for the you know for the ref- refugees uh, in in Papua New Guinea. Even though you know Labor, Labor has a very particular responsibility because you know Labor actually created the deal in the first place, which mm. uh, sent refugees there in 2013. Mm, I see, and so 
while there has been no payments made to the refugee service providers, how has the living conditions been for the refugees? Um, well, they've, they've been getting worse. What we've seen over, over the last period, the last you know, perhaps a year and a bit more, is that the services have started to be you know, kind of cut off. I mean, one is that they were shuffled around from place to, you know, from place, to place. So the, uh, the level of... Uh, you know the uh, the service pr- provision uh, you know wasn't great you know in the first place but um over the last several months we've seen um the electricity the 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 the, the service providers no longer pay for electricity for gas you know for wi-fi uh, so it's meant that the allowances that they're paid which haven't changed since 2013 of course the cost of living in papua new guinea like everywhere else has gone up um, so their, their allowances were, you know, in real terms being reduced, and then, you know, when those services were cut off, they're being reduced even more. So uh, they are being, you know, driven into even you know, greater levels of poverty. And these, are, in some cases, these people are, are very. Some of them are, are very, very unwell. Um, and um, you know, it's yeah. So, so their, their conditions have, have got worse and worse. Mm. And just one last question for you, Ian. What what do you think can be done for the refugees at the moment? What's what what can we do to help for to the what do you want the listeners to know basically? Um, well, I think we we need the, the terms of the deal need to be made need to be made public. I mean that's that's one very you know very obvious thing. There needs to be pressure on Labor to you know reveal the terms of that uh, of that agreement. Um, the and but the, the the main thing I think is that uh, is to establish that. Uh, that the refugees who are in Papua New Guinea should be brought to Australia. Um, we've got, you know, we've been uh, pushing on the Labor government since uh, they were they were elected, you know, last year to take responsibility. Uh, we've seen people brought from Nauru uh, to Australia, to Australia um, although they've now put people back on, you know, on Nauru, but nonetheless. Uh, People who um, the, the people who were on Nauru when they were elected were brought were brought off from Nauru to Australia. Even even those that had uh, going to be resettled in other countries were brought to Australia and able to go to those other countries, you know, from Australia. The people in Papua New Guinea, in most cases, are in much worse uh, circumstances uh, than those people on Nauru. But they, as I said, uh, that the, the government simply denied responsibility for those people. They should be brought to Australia as well. Uh, there's certainly, there's probably around uh, 30 or 40 people uh, who have no resettlement pathway. There's around 16 people who are so unwell they've not been able to engage with any refugee authorities. They urgently need you know, medical treatment. Uh, so I know in, in Melbourne, you, uh, I think you had a demonstration uh, yesterday. Uh, there are other you know, protests are actually being planned that have uh, you know, raised the issue about permanent, you know, permanent visas. Uh, one of the people, what groups of people who need permanent visas are the people in Papua New Guinea who are still you know, offshore. So I think uh, the more people can do to you know, contact, contact the members of parliament, be involved in any of the protests that are being uh, you know, organised to uh, insist that, uh, that, you know, that, that they Labor government needs to take responsibility for the people who were sent there. We've got 62 people. Uh, they need they need security. They need safety. They should be brought to Australia. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian. Yeah, thanks a lot, Grace. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. And that was Ian Rintel, who is the spokesperson for Refugee Action Coalition, where we were discussing the corruption suspicions over a secret Papua New Guinea refugee contract made with the Morrison government back in 2021. Bisexual Alliance Victoria 
is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We've got more headlines for you. According to studies, there has been ground there's a groundwater that have significant source of pollution uh, happening on are reaching the Great Barrier Reef. Scientists say they have discovered that the large flow of solutions are reaching the Great Barrier Reef after soaking into underground water, a finding that could have implications for policymakers who are focusing on cutting pollution from river catchments. The research claims that almost a third of dissolved inorganic nitrogen and two-thirds of dissolved inorganic phosphorus in the reef water are coming from underground sources. The controlling pollution running off to the reef and farms has been a major focus for governments and agencies in the recent years. 
and the scientists saying improving water quality will give corals a better chance of recovering from bleaching events caused by the global heating. United Nations science experts have repeatedly raised concerns that progress in improving water quality have been too slow and a failure to tackle issues alongside the climate crisis that could risk the reef of being placed on a list of World Heritage Sites in danger. Scientists at Southern Cross University, the Australian Institute of Marine Science and CISRO collaborated on the research, and this has been a decade in making and is published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Researchers have took water samples and analysed them for radium isotopes that act as a marker for pollutions. The study has did not identify whether the source of the pollution, but rather that this is the route that it took to the reef. The death toll from a series of earthquakes in western Afghanistan has risen to more than 2,400 people, according to the Taliban government. A 6.3 magnitude earthquake struck on Saturday, followed by eight strong aftershocks, um, which hit... 19 miles from the provincial capital of Herat, uh, toppling rural homes and sending city dwellers into the streets. A government spokesperson has said the survivors have nothing in the area. They need food, clothes, tents and medicine. The earthquake hit very remote and poor areas. Many of them are refugees who recently arrived back from Iran and Pakistan. And the spokesperson is calling for international help. In other news, almost half of private school student, uh, private school parents, sorry, would c- consider switching to a better-funded public system. Survey finds, Lonigan Research Survey finds, sixty-three percent of parents agree public schools are underfunded, as ABS data shows decline in public enrolments. Almost half of all parents with children in Australia's private schools would consider moving them to the public system if it was better resourced, according to this new survey. So now we're going to jump to another song. This is a song called Shells by probably one of the best voices in Melbourne, I reckon. Uh, Her name's Hannah McKittrick. uh, Has a show on PBS of ambient music. It's pretty nice. Um, And you'll get a taste of it. And I know it's yours and mine now And I can't look in front or behind to know how could be so wide. I have glimpses of pianos and beaches And I can't sleep without you reaching for me Time 
You're listening to 3CR 855am and that was Shells by the beautiful Hannah McKittrick. I'm going oh, I'm going to be speaking to Georgia Nardrit who is the Australian manager for the Stop It Now service which is a service for people who worry about having sexual thoughts on children. Good morning Georgia. Good morning. So Georgia can we first get you to explain a bit what is the Stop It Now service and how does it work? So Stop It Now is a child sexual abuse prevention service. Mm-hmm. Um, so the main part of the program is an anonymous phone line, live chat and online resources for anyone concerned about their own or someone else's sexual thoughts or behaviours towards children in order to help them make positive changes to prevent harm. Mm. And so can we just talk a bit more about how this was created, like who built this and how is it how 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 this started its operations? Yeah, so Stop It Now started in the US over thirty years ago. It was introduced by Fran Henry. Um Fran Henry's a victim survivor of child sexual abuse who acknowledged that what existed today um focused a lot on working with individuals after the harm was caused all putting the responsibility to prevent it on children. And, and while this plays a role, she wanted to shift the focus 
to put the responsibility where it belonged with adults to prevent harm. And so since she introduced it 30 years ago, it's actually been picked up in the UK, Netherlands, Belgium, and and now here in Australia, Mm. with the focus on on intervening earlier. Mm, I see. So it basically started from... Uh, overseas and then only re- only just about last year, yes, only started now started in Australia. Yeah, awesome. correct. Um, right, so Georgia, th- with this stop it now service, it has basically also helped a lot with early interventions. And research have demonstrated that there actually can be ten year gaps between someone first realizing that they have sexual thoughts about children, and uh, first coming to the attention of police. So does the stopping not know how to detect whether people start having these thoughts or is just a mere service for consulting people when they start to have that worry? Yeah, I think it's really great to bring up that research and demonstrate that important window for, for intervention. Mm. Um, we work with individuals who have had these thoughts potentially for some time um, and are accessing, wanting to access support to ensure that they don't uh, lead to behaviours. Mm. <clears throat> Apologies. We also work with individuals who um, maybe have harmed and are motivated to never do so again. And so that that gap, that 10 years, is a really important window to intervene earlier before any harm is caused or any further harm is caused to children. Mm, I see. Um, why do you think this service is so important what what results out there have shown that it is so important to have a need for perpetration prevention services yeah so the the prevalence of of abuse is significant a a recent study showed that one in three girls and one in four one in five boys in australia um, is a victim survivor of this type of harm and the impacts of that are lifelong the large majority of responses that exist today focus on after the harm is caused and while this plays a really imperative role for individuals to access support we need to be doing much more sooner before that harm is caused Um, we know that there's been this shift towards the focus of the perpetrator in other types of harm for example family violence there has been a shift towards working with the perpetrators to prevent the harm and that's now what's happening in this area we're encouraging individuals to think about the harm that they've caused or pose a risk of causing and to access help independently to make the changes that they need to make to prevent it from happening. Mm, I see. And how how has Stop It Now, like who have they, who, who have they worked with to ensure that it's trusted and making sure the people who are answering the phones are reliable? Mm. So we have a a small but experienced team of of individuals answering the phones. Um, We've taken a lot of learning and consultation from our international colleagues across the world. Um, I used to work for the Stop It Now UK team. And so taking learning from what type of individuals work best um, with callers, taking a really in-depth training package so that every person that is on the phone has completed several months of training, of shadowing, of joint consultation before they're independently working with individuals that reach out to the service. And and that training includes awareness of the model, awareness of what works with individuals that call us, and and bringing back that goal 
of what works to prevent child sexual abuse and taking learning from from international and national experts in that. Mm, I see. And also, I think also one of the most important things with Stop It Now service is that it really needs to draw a lot on anonymity. Anonymity. So is does this uh, how how is this service work with ensuring that people's personal records are kept trust uh yeah basically how 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 making sure that everything is anonymous yeah we know that um so shame fear of stigma fear of criminal consequences are the biggest barriers to accessing help and so that's why stop it now is anonymous to encourage people to feel safe to pick up the phone um and access that support the service is anonymous, and so we don't have access to anyone's numbers, nor do we ask individuals to disclose identifiable information. Um, however, we do comply with all mandatory reporting obligations, and we make it very clear at the beginning of every call, as well as on our website, kind of what that means. And if anyone has questions or concerns about that, we, we talk through it at the beginning of the call before we progress with any further information. Mm, and there's... Um, from what I said when I was reading through the website as well in regards to this uh, mm-hmm. there's possibly maybe cases where you have to reveal the records in case if there's anything that could happen that could lead to further possible dangers uh, in regards to the people having the thoughts and maybe might lead to sexual abuse or something and then this could is, is is there a case where it could possibly lead to revealing the records to the police? Because I know people usually may not necessarily trust the police with that. Yeah, the as I mentioned, we, we do comply with kind of that mandatory reporting obligation that mm. exists. Um, as mentioned, the service is anonymous, so there is limited information that we are often able to provide. But we will explore with that individual when that threshold would likely be met um, and how we can work with them to help them feel comfortable to access the help that they need in order to prevent harm. Um, and just making it very clear with the individual and helping them make the decision to, to access help because you know, that's how we effectively make change. Mm. And Stop It Now, has on- with the fact that it's only launched just about last year, it's still very, quite relatively new here in Australia, but it has, it's not new in the UK and Ireland. What, what, what are the results like for the service since then until now? What, how, yeah, basically, how was the results for Stop It Now, people using the service? So since we launched um, just over a year ago, we've been very um, happy and feel very positive about the results that are coming in. The University of Melbourne is completing an evaluation of the service. Mm. Um, and from their preliminary findings, it's demonstrating that we are having our intended effect. So we are working with individuals um, earlier, uh, with the majority of those concerned about themselves being pre-arrest. Um, and also that we're working with individuals to address the risk factors that are associated with offending behaviour as well as working with them to increase protective factors that we know support and prevent offending and allow individuals to live that kind of more well-rounded, happy and offence-free life. Mm, that's, that's, that's great. So, uh, Georgia, I think just, just getting one, one last question from you before we wrap up. 
how is Stop It Now a good service to for early intervention? Why is why is early intervention a key and to intervening possible abuse in the future? Mm. So the the aspect of kind of early intervention is meant to be as soon as possible. So as as you've already mentioned, there is often a ten year window between mm-hmm. the, the first thought and a possible arrest. We actually hear from victim survivors of, of this type of harm that actually that gap can sometimes be even longer. Um, and there is a, a variety of, of reasons for that. This type of harm is very hidden. Individuals go to a great extent to keep it secret. And for those who are um, victims to it, there is also you know barriers to disclosing to adults around the family unit. There are misconceptions about where harm happens, who is a risk, what a risk is. Um, and, and so these kind of, this environment and this shine away from the topic actually allows the abuse to continue and, and can actually increase the gap between those thoughts and that arrest. Uh, and so I know this is a very confronting topic, mm. but it is a very important one. And a large part of early intervention is to work with communities, with families, with potential perpetrators to increase learning about what harm is, what the warning signs are, who is a risk, what a risk is. Address the misconceptions that happen over there in other communities, not in my family unit, not in my community. And most importantly, let people know where they can get help in regards to themselves or in regards to someone else in order to make that change and to prevent the harm as early as possible, the service exists to prevent children from having to go through abuse. And by working with individuals who pose a risk and family members, we can make a change in preventing child sexual abuse. Oh, and Georgia, sorry, just, bef- just before we let you go, is there any warning signs that people need to look out for? Like, are there specific things... Yeah, there's there's warning signs both within children and within adults, and I encourage individuals to be aware of of both. Um, the the normal narrative is what is the warning signs in children, and this can be changes in behaviour, um, there can be physical symptoms, um, kind of a, a fear of a certain person, for example. And there is a full list on the Bravehearts website, which I encourage everyone to have a look at and look through. There's also warning signs in adults, which often isn't very spoken about. And this is where we can really engage in that early intervention and prevention as well. So we recently posted on our social media warning signs, including individuals having a particular focus on a specific child, potentially buying presents, candy. It can be, it can be lollies. It can be a really small thing. But going out their way for that specific child, um, off, offering to do babysitting, and, and all of these an individual may not seem that concerning, but it's about being aware of all the warning signs and asking the questions. And if you don't know, give us a call and we can talk through them with you and help you to make the changes to kind of put up that barriers and that support. Mm-hmm. I see. Thank you so much, Jodha. It's been lovely having you on our show. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jodha. And that was Georgia Nardred, who is the Australian manager of the Stop It Now service, which helps to provide guidance for people who worry they have sexual thoughts on children. So, 
Stop It Now has a helpline that you can contact. So it's, and just to emphasize again, it is anonymous help and support. You can call 1-800-01-1800. So yeah, I'll just repeat that again. You can call 1-800-01-1800. So that's where you can access the helpline for the Stop It Now service. And they also have live, ch- live chats and secure emails. But if you do face any danger in if that you are possibly that you could possibly face please you can call triple zero instead just please just please remember as well stop it now is only for the guidance and supporting of people who are worried on sexual thoughts it's not where you need if not it's not where you can report any sexual any signs of sexual abuse and of incident uh of incidents as such so yeah if you're going to report please call triple zero and so that's all I have. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter.
You are listening to 3CR. This is Monday Breakfast. That was Squid Nebula with the new song from Here to You. We're now going to be joined by Timothy Neal, Senior Lecturer in the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales, and we'll be talking about how economists have severely underestimated the impacts of climate change on our economy. Timothy, thanks for joining the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Now, just um, you wrote an amazing article in the conversation that talked about how economists have been underestimating what the impacts of climate change will be. Um, what have economists been saying about climate change, and why is it flawed? Yeah, so we know from we've known from scientists for quite a long time of the huge impacts that climate change could have on the natural systems of the earth, or the ecosystems, and the way that weather works, and where people like economists come in is they need to translate this information to try to understand what impact this could have on our livelihoods and the way that we live and the way the the economy works. And this kind of modeling goes into things like government reports, 
It goes into things like business decision-making and just basically what we can expect from climate change in the future. And unfortunately, the models that economists have come up with over the last few decades all predict a pretty surprising thing, that the impacts of climate change, even severe climate change, is actually going to be very mild in terms of GDP per capita by the end of this century. Mm. Most studies and models actually predict a hit of around negative 1% to negative 7%, which is very small and will be overwhelmed by technological growth. And the thing that makes this surprising is that it's really in stark contrast to what we hear from the scientists who, who consider severe climate change to be the greatest threat to humanity at the moment. Mm. So there's, a, there's quite a, a difference in, in opinion there, I suppose. Um, in your article, you noted that um, climate change and related shocks are very different from what economists have been modelling uh, based on impacts from weather disasters in the past. Uh, what makes climate change and the related shocks different from what we've known historically? Yeah, that's a great question. So how these models work is they, they use historical data. So they look into the past and they see how have weather shocks impacted economies um, in the last, say, six decades. Mm. And then the, the whole idea of the models is that we can use that information to gain insight and predict what future weather shocks might do. The trouble with that logic is that weather shocks in the past tend to be local or regional. So, for instance, if Australia undergoes a very severe shock, like the drought that we had between 2018 and 2020, um, that will affect um, the growth of food here, for instance. Mm. But at the exact same time, there will be good harvests in other parts of the world. So things, on average, tend to balance out in the past, that is. And so countries can use trade. So if, if one country has a shortfall in one year, continuing the example of agricultural markets, other countries can export food to them because they, they grew in excess of food. And so things tend to balance out year by year. And that really mutes the impact that weather shocks have on economies in the historical period. The trouble with this is that climate change is a very different beast. So especially severe climate change of warming of, say, over two, two and a half or even three degrees. Um, that's going to be what's, what's called a global weather shock. So it's going to significantly increase the chance that um, places are going to have bad weather shocks at the exact same time. And when that happens, that could have very disproportionate impacts on markets in terms of GDP, you know, economic growth impact, or in terms of prices as well. Mm. It sounds like what hasn't happened in the past is that we've had a number of impacts occur in short succession or even the same time and so we don't really know how to cope with that is that is that about right yeah so you know we live in a globalized world um we, we contribute to global supply chains and if if a country can't make something in a certain year it could certainly import them from global markets and that has served as a great mechanism through which we can cushion ourselves from weather shocks. Mm. But that relies on weather shocks being local or regional. If we have a situation where the, the, the planet has warmed significantly in the coming decades, then it is probably going to be very common that you know even large countries have severe weather shocks at the exact same time. And we're already starting to see this happen. Um, so I'll give you an example of how this works. Mm. So I mentioned Australia had a severe drought between 2018 to 2020. So our production of wheat over the whole country roughly halved 
um, relative to 2017. So the, the production of wheat dropped significantly. And the amount of grains that we produced in New South Wales and Queensland, and I also think Victoria, actually fell below the amount that we consume. And this is quite remarkable because Australia is a very large food producer that usually exports very large quantities of food onto the global market. Mm. So the fact that we were growing less grain in the eastern, in eastern, sorry, in eastern Australia than we actually consume is, is quite remarkable. So it was a very severe drought that really impacted crops. However, WA was not undergoing the same severity of drought, and they had continued to have good wheat production in this time. So what, Australia, what Eastern Australia did was import wheat from WA, very large quantity, um, and that kind of prevented there being any problems in terms of shortages in grain in Eastern Australia. So consumers barely even noticed that this was happening. It kind of it relies on weather being good in some places and bad in other places. But mm. future climate change, especially severe climate change, that's going to significantly increase the probability that countries that produce large quantities of grain are going to have bad weather shocks at the exact same time. And that can cause extremely large increases in the price of food, very large price food, uh, food price shocks. Um, and these, the types of modelling that economists do for climate change currently just can't factor this kind of stuff in. Mm. That's, that's very concerning. Um, I'd like to just zoom into Australia in terms of what Australian economists have been saying with regard to climate change. And I'd like to ask, has uh, poor modelling of climate change uh, been influencing the government currently in any way? Yeah, that's a great question. So since the, the Labor government has come in, there's been a renewed interest in the public sector to start modelling these types of issues. And uh, the recent example is Treasury released what was called the Intergenerational Report, mm. where they looked at what Australia, what the Australian economy might look like in 2063. And part of that is modelling the impacts of climate change. And they focused their attention on modelling the impacts on crop yield and productive, labour productivity shocks. Now, it's not the role of tr people in Treasury to invent new methods. Uh, to, to estimate these kinds of things. So what they did was they, they looked at the literature, what's been done before in overseas by economists, and they adapted the same methodology to Australia. Mm. And the, the impacts that they were able to model were, were very, very small. Um, whether it's impacting government. So one of the, one of the things uh, internationally that has kind of come out of these economic models is this idea that some countries will be unaffected by climate change or perhaps even benefit from climate change. Many of the more economic models actually suggest this. Mm. And often the thought is that richer countries, such as Australia, might be much less affected than the developing world. And I think that that idea has become quite pervasive uh, in the mainstream as well as among economists. That idea tends to pr promote indifference. So, you know, people think, well, you know, worst case scenario, we won't be that badly affected. We'll be okay. Um, and people would like to think of themselves as being insulated from coming global trends. But again, the problem with this logic is that Australia is not an isolated country. You know, we, mm. we're part of the world and what happens overseas affects us here extraordinarily. And even if we were relatively unaffected by climate change, which is not true, but let's say hypothetically, even if that were the case, uh, 
what happens in the U.S., what happens in China, what happens in Brazil and the EU and even Africa, that will have large impacts on our economy as well. And we saw that, for instance, during COVID and the global financial crisis, large global shocks affect us just as much as everywhere else because of the way that the world economy works. Wow. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, improvements in the methodology and obtaining more realistic or perhaps reasonable guesses, if it is at all possible, will perhaps help um, spur governments to action because, you know, it's definitely not going to be the case that the colder parts of the world benefit from climate change. Mm. Uh, if I can, Timothy, I'd, I'd just like to ask you, you're an economist yourself. Um, when you came to learn about how economists were modelling climate change and, and the worries associated with that, uh, how did that make you feel just about your profession and, and moving forward? Well, you know, to be fair, um, modelling these things is not easy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very hard problem because future climate change is something that is wholly outside our historical experience. And the way that the tools that economists have built to kind of gain insight into the future, they rely on things that we observe in the past. That's just how statistical models work. And it's especially hard to do it here. Mm. Where they erred, perhaps, is not so much that um, they didn't arrive at the perfect model immediately, but perhaps they were a bit overconfident in how correct these models were. And that, that flowed into overconfidence in the government uh, reporting and modelling that kind of came out of these methodologies. Uh, so, you know, it, it's in every part of economics, there's certainly things that we can improve. But given the enormity and the urgency of the problem that is climate change, you know, I, I really hoped that as a profession, we can um, continue to progress at a much faster rate than uh, we have in the past on in this area. Mm, no, thanks for that, Tim. Uh, just one last question. Um, when people encounter, you know, econ economists or government talking about models about climate change and the potential impacts, uh, in your article you recommended uh, viewing them with a bit of scepticism. Uh, how would you recommend, uh, I guess, being sceptical? What, what, what's something to look out for, I guess? That's a great question. So the, the reason why, um, you know, economists as a profession model things is because they've developed skills that um, usual people don't have because they've dedicated a lot of time and energy into working on these kinds of models and reports. Mm. Uh, and so it, sometimes when you model something and you release the results, people you can't expect people to go into the details of the model and to think to be able to have the, um, the expertise to think critically about how it was made or how, how trustworthy it might be. Um, and so people might tend to just give too much credibility to a model um, because they read about it in a media report and they don't see the underlying uh, modeling article, uh, nor should they, of course. So it's hard to be, um, have a healthy amount of skepticism when you interpret the results of modeling. But I guess what I would say is that, you know, climate change, you just look at the complexity of the problem. You know, this is something that is outside our historical experience. The scientists are telling us it's the greatest threat to humanity right now, or at least a whole bunch of them are. And so if you see an economic model that says, uh, you know, for instance, oh, we might be impacted, GDP might be impacted by 5% by 2050, 
what you're going to if you think about that figure, your immediate reaction is going to be, well, hang on, that does not sound like the greatest threat to humanity. And it's going to sound a bit confusing and counterintuitive. And I guess my advice would be to trust that instinct mm. because uh, there is a big clash there. And um, in this case, at the moment, as the way that the models are currently developed, I would uh, to the side of the scientists and to trust their warnings over what a mod- an economic model might predict. Mm. Thanks so much, Tim. And thank you so much for the work you're doing and joining us on Monday Breakfast today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. That was Timothy Neal, Senior Lecturer in the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales, on how economists have severely underestimated the impact of climate change on our economy. For fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes Fafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white Fafia to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And yeah, that's all for our show today. We've covered pretty big topics. It was Economics. jam-packed. Mm-hmm. Jam-packed. Jam-packed. Big ones today. For, in, for lives and with very big, big, to- interesting topics. I hope all listeners got to digest because yeah. it was very heavy. Have a, have a cup of Range. tea. Mm. Go for a little stroll around the block. Mm. And mm-hmm. just want to say, great work, team. Great interviews. Awesome. Thank great you. stuff. Part of ourselves. Yep. Give, a, give ourselves a pat on the back. And pat just, on the back. Just to the listeners out there, if you do need more time to digest and maybe want to look again at the things we've discussed in the show, you can always check out the podcast and mm. the show notes that we post on the 3CR website yep. um, as we do that every week, obviously. But um, yeah, this week, in case you just wanted to know more or you know, read yeah. more about it, then that's yep. where it'll be. You can just look up Monday Breakfast for on our Tricia website, the tricia.org.au. So yeah, you can head there later. It's not up yet, but it will be there. So, and yeah, you can access more information of our stuff there. Fantastic. Awesome. Mm. So what are you going to do during the whole week, guys? Well, I'm starting to work on my PhD again, yep. which has got me very excited which is something I didn't feel a year ago when I took a break. Mm. So that's my week, and I'm very happy about that. How about you, mm. Rob? Um, I am, as I, I told you guys last week, I'm going on a trip to Brisbane this oh, weekend. Yeah. So Where's Vegas? Basically just, uh, well, my, my intention is to just sit by the brown snake for four days and just read a book. Oh, read yeah. books, really. So um, I'm just going to spend the week curating a list of books to read. You sound like a good reader, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very well read. Yes. I wish I could be like you and sit all day to read, but I can never sit still. Yeah. Um, yes. I need to walk. I like walking a lot, actually. 
It's hard, um, it's hard mm. to read a book when you walk, isn't it? Yeah, that's mm. true. <laughs> that is true. Yes. I, I do see some people do it on the street, though, and I think, oh, kudos to you. Yes. Well, just... I can easily do that with my phone, but not with my book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I almost hit a pole, actually. I Ooh. think about a week or two ago, <laughs> at night, I was walking back home. I swear, I've ne- it doesn't happen to me. Um, can't believe that mm. happened. So embarrassing, but thank God no one saw. It was mm. late at night anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah. Yeah, well, I just... Um, just yesterday, I actually finished finished a book, and I think because of that, I've got the you know sense to start another one and yeah. finish that as well. Um, I think I probably will do some walking in Brisbane, but it also depends how hot it is. How Amazing. About you? What about you, James? What's going on for your week? Uh, well, other than the PhD work, I'll be lying down a lot. I reckon. Hopefully, yep. the sun comes out. Yes. Hopefully, the sun please. comes out. Please, it's a bit too cold. It's a bit too cold. Mm. But with daylight savings, we get an earlier sunrise, which mm. is good for us getting here in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that just about is, is done for our time for the day. You've been listening to Monday Breakfast with Grace, Rob and James. Have a good week and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.